I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm Dr. Kelly Jones. And this is Big Strong. Yes. Welcome to Big Strong Yes, the show where two best friends read books together and try to apply what they learn to their lives. This season, our book is Burnout by Emily Nagoski, PhD, and Amelia Nagoski, DMA. I'm researcher Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. The reading we'll be discussing today is Burnout Chapter 3, Meaning. Next week's reading is Chapter 4, The Game is Rigged. Go to chipperish.com and look under Big Strong Yes to find our complete schedule or look in your show notes to find the link. All right, Dr. Jones, it's another week and here we are again to dig deep into our psyches as we read Burnout. Um, so let's go ahead and get started, I guess, with the homework. homework. Did you do your homework? I did. Um, so my homework was to redefine my persistence. And I don't know, do you ever say things and then you listen and you're like, what the hell was I talking about? What did I mean when I said <laughs> yes, that? Yeah, all the time, all the time that I was like, huh? Yeah. Um, and I and I think for that, acknowledging the hard is harder than I thought. And yeah. so I find myself when I'm setting goals that are physical, I'm struggling with physical weakness because in life I do and have done very hard things and I'm strong in a lot of ways, but I'm not physically strong. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm rumbling with the overwhelming don't want to of exercise, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> while trying to appreciate my body and make peace with the things it can't do. And and maybe in, in the context of today's chapter is I think it's a struggle to find meaning in the presence of physical pain and yeah. and like it's a lot messier and more difficult than than i thought it was and mm -hmm. i don't really know how to start unpacking that so well that's interesting because we they talk about that a little bit yeah uh, you know you find meaning through you know um I don't even remember. We'll get to it when we get there. But part of it was about like the the pain part, mm -hmm. you know, like the dealing with the acceptance of it, and that somehow that has meaning to it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, now I can see that, um, and I wish I had an answer for you, but I don't. Yeah. I'm not that smart, but maybe maybe the doctors Nagoski will. Um. <laughs> so my homework last week was to think consciously about completing the cycle and report back. And here is my problem. I can exercise to complete the cycle, like, and it is fairly effective most of the time, but I will not cry. And sometimes I think I need to cry because there are certain cycles that I will go to exercise for and exercise will not serve me. Um, so when I'm dealing with something that is uh, deeply emotional, that is, you know, upsetting, that triggers the trauma or whatever. Um, I go to the physical action, right? You know, I like taking action, but I hate crying. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I cried a lot. Like anybody who listened to the first, I don't know, 30 episodes of Big Strong Ass <laughs> yes, heard me cry like a ton. And I hated it, but I couldn't help it. I was crying all the time. Now that I'm like happier in my life and everything's pretty good, I find that I do not allow myself that emotional space to to experience and examine 
those areas in which that you you know you might want to cry mm-hmm. and you might need to cry and the the exercise won't do it and i'm really irritated because now i'm exercising more than i ever have in my life i should be completing the goddamn cycle and yet <laughs> there are some things that exercise will not do it for so that is kind of i think uh going to be a process for me mhm yeah yeah i struggle with crying too so that'll be Maybe potential things for both of us to look at together. And won't that be fun? Uh, It'll be super fun. It'll be super fun. So how were your reflections this week? Oh, God. Okay. Looking back through the discussion that we had last week and thinking about it, like the biggest takeaway that I had last week was this idea of being a failure Mm -hmm. and how hard I take that, how deeply I feel my failure. Um, And I, I kind of took a little time to examine that because I very strongly believe in failing as not just a positive experience, but like a necessary one. Mm -hmm. You have to fail. Like it's, it's failure makes you stronger. Failure makes you better. Um, There are a million benefits to failing and you cannot succeed if you haven't failed, you know? Um, So, but it's funny because I, I think failure is essential to being really good at anything. And I can embrace failure on a professional level level where I value being good at what I do so much. Yeah. Um, but then there's like personal failure. And I think that's the wall that I kind of like bounce off of on this. Um, it's hard. It's something that I still, you know, to reference Brene Brown from the beginning of the first season of Big Strong Yes that I'm reckoning with, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and I think that if my sense of my own failure comes at a cost to someone aside from me, then I feel that very deeply. Like, um, I don't think I have to tell you that my ego is pretty healthy. You know, uh, it can take a hit of failure. Trust me, it has had loads of practice. But when I think of my failure having hurt other people, uh, be it my failure to keep my temper in check or my failure to remember the things that matter to my people or my failure to, you know, not marry a sociopath, I take it really hard, like really personally. And I feel that very deeply. Um, All right. So failure. Right. I have this problem with failure. And as I think about it more, as I reflect on it more, um, I think that maybe it's not failure um, that is the real problem for me there. It's regret. Um, Like, have you ever had that feeling when something's gone horribly wrong, like when you've dropped a precious thing? And it is lying broken on the ground. And you feel like you would give your actual life to be able to reverse time and take that moment back. Right. But you can't. Yeah. Um, And I've been living in that space for going on four years. Right. Um, The moment between the drop and the crash was six years, you know, Um, and before that. But I still didn't know any of that until about four years ago. I didn't know that I had dropped the precious thing. I didn't know that I had broken it until I came to realize everything that had been happening, you know, Um, and the space between the drop and the crash was six years. And I've been living that resistance to time moving on because the more it moves, the more out of my reach that moment is when the precious thing slipped from my fingers. And part of me lives, I think, always stuck in that split second between the drop and the crash when I might have done something to stop it. And part of me still can't accept that I didn't stop it. You know, for six years, I let the precious thing fall and I still want desperately to, like, undo that damage, you know. But then you get to the reframing. 
right? Like what happened was awful. And let me just state for those of you who remember how much I fucking ranted against forgiveness for people who are not sorry. This is in no way a forgiveness of him. I remain firmly on the side of fuck forgiveness. He is garbage and I grant him no grace here. But I am where I am now because of that experience. And I have to allow for that complexity. Um, I reclaimed myself and my life and I healed not just from his abuse, but from the abuse that preceded him, like the original source abuse that made me such a perfect target for his particular brand of machinations. You know, Um, I like where I am now. I like who I am now. And I have to say I wouldn't be either where I am or who I am, had it not been for that experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this thing like sometimes they have to burn down forests, you know, for new life to grow. And maybe that scorched earth that destroyed everything I was before has created fertile ground for a happier, healthier, stronger Lonnie now. Um, Maybe I can finally release that moment, allow the crash and stop fighting it and just finally glue the pieces back together. Um, Because I do let those pieces sit in jagged, separate spaces, gathering dust. I mean, I've cleaned around them, but I haven't tried to make them whole again because then I wouldn't be honoring the fucking mess I made. If I make everything whole again, I have to accept that I can't turn back time and undo it all. And this brings me back to the story that you told me, Kelly, in the early days of BSY about Kintsugi, the Japanese art of fixing broken pottery using molten gold. And when it cools, this piece is different. The cracks are the opposite of hidden, like something we're ashamed of. There is something that we celebrate. You know, the cracks are highlighted, celebrated, used as an inspiration to make the thing even more beautiful than it was in the first place. And I think that maybe now is my time to engage some kintsugi. That's beautiful. Oh, God, listening to you. I mean, first of all, like the mother part of my heart is so filled with so many regrets. But there was a time uh, my son was, uh, I don't know, about two. And I was walking across the yard holding him. And I stepped into what ended up being a really deep hole that I didn't see. And it completely twisted my ankle and but I fell and I dropped him. And so like, I have literally dropped the precious thing. And and it's been 20 years, and he's fine. And I would still give anything to go back like I still have flashes of that moment. Just it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, So I feel when you said that I was like, Oh, God, I know that feeling. I mean, I know it in so many ways. But I know what that feels like, you know, and I mean, I carry more regret than I can begin to process, um, especially with parenting. And the only way I could repair those things is with the time machine. So, you know, rumbling with regret is awful and heavy and constant. But I, I do think there's power in the growth that comes after the fire is done burning. But I also think there is a kind of grief that walks hand in hand with regret. And we don't always acknowledge it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes we have to say, this is grief. I am feeling grief and let it run through us because that's what regret turns into, I think, in in certain ways, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I can't go back and tell my younger self the things that I know now. And, and I have a lot of regret and grief from years and years that I spent trying to twist myself into shapes that are not authentic to me. And I think from my very pragmatic mind, it would be very easy to say that I've wasted a lot of time or I persisted in the wrong direction or I failed hard. Um, But I didn't know then what I know now. 
you know, and yeah. just like the the Dr. Stangowski were saying, you know, science reveals the best truth that is available today. Mm-hmm. I'm now working right. with what I know, you know, today. Mm-hmm. And I've learned from those experiences. And I'm the person I am now because of them. But it is much easier for me to rumble in the mental, emotional, spiritual, social, grammatical realms than it is <laughs> the physical, you know. Um, so I was reflecting this week that like I I didn't just spend decades putting my self-care at the bottom of the list. I abused my body um, mm-hmm. and my forms of self-harm weren't done out of maliciousness like they were coping strategies i understand now that they were maladaptive coping coping strategies but they were the things that worked at the time Mm -hmm. and so now i find myself in this space where i have some insight and self-knowledge and awareness and growth and you know age on my side but i still have to engage with the results like the physical results of all of those years of abusing my body. And so trying to do that with some compassion and more move toward healing, you know, is really hard and really messy. So like I went back to the goal setting section of chapter two. I'm like, how do I write a goal for this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so I'm really struggling with this, but I, I do want to keep working in this direction. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm bringing more questions than clarity to the discussion this week but i it, it's just this this sense of i know this is what i want to do but i don't know how yeah yeah well and i think that you have to drive through questions to get to clarity yeah you know like you don't always know you have to kind of live in that space with i don't know and let that be and mm-hmm. i know that that's always uncomfortable for me. I am always looking to define everything. Yeah. I am always looking to have an answer to figure it out, you know, and when you have to sit in uncertainty while you kind of rumble with it and figure it out, it's really uncomfortable. I don't like it. Yeah, I know. It's super uncomfortable. <laughs> super, super <laughs> uncomfortable. Oh, my God. All right. So let's go ahead and get into this reading, oh which God. is no big deal. It's just meaning. It's just meaning. Right? It's like the literal meaning of life in a chapter. Yeah. So I, yeah. this is probably going to be a long episode. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be an interesting, an interesting discussion. We both have a lot. Um, one of the things that we start with in this chapter, the quote from them is that's the power of meaning. We can tolerate any suffering if we know why. And the why is what matters. And again, this brings me back to my storytelling stuff. I know everything brings me back I love to it. storytelling. When when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. I'm that kind of person. <laughs> everything. Well, I think that stories do reflect human existence and the realities and truth of human existence. So, of course, it's going to reflect psychology, mm-hmm. you know, the study of the human mind. So, um, so I like that, you know, we're getting a sense of meaning and, and what it is. And there are these two approaches to it, uh, happiness enhancing and trauma healing. Right. So they were talking about that. Um, And the quote they have is meaning is the feeling that you matter in some larger sense. Lives may be experienced as meaningful when they are felt to have significance beyond the trivial or the momentary to have purpose or to have coherence that transcends chaos. So looking at that in these two forms, that there is a happiness enhancing kind of meaning. And then there is a trauma healing or trauma coping Mm -hmm. kind of meaning. 
that we have to find meaning in the things that have hurt us. Like, did I not just go through this whole, maybe the scorched earth was necessary. Maybe I wouldn't be who I was today if I hadn't experienced this thing. Um, And that is a trauma coping mechanism that gives the trauma meaning. If I become a better person because of that experience, Mm -hmm. then that experience now has meaning, has purpose, and I can live with it. But that that whole thing is like, okay, so is it true? And what what defines whether it's true and whether like this meaning actually applies or is it just me making up a story and making up a narrative? Yeah, this is um, this is a ball of yarn that unravels quickly when I start asking questions. So it was really funny. um, And I didn't put this in my notes, but I've been thinking about it for three days. But with what you just Mm -hmm. said, I'm like, okay. when I read this chapter, I kept thinking about Westworld. And there's this running theme in that show where someone will say, is this real? Mm -hmm. And the person will answer, if you can't tell the difference, does it matter? And, And so like I. This, this idea of is the meaning real or is it whatever? Are we holding it up for some kind of judgment or validation? If it feels meaningful to you, it has yeah. meaning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so no. crunchy. The whole question of is this real? Yeah. You know, like what is reality? Like in the Still Pretty podcast, Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, uh, you know, we talk about Dawn, right? This this character who, you know, sorry, spoiler, just kind of shows up out of nowhere. But they have all these memories of this character, right? So if the memories and the experience are there, if you remember it, because all of our realities are just our memories, then doesn't that define what is real? But when... Like if you didn't experience something, but you remember experiencing something that you didn't actually experience, like to me, that starts unraveling things at a, at a level that I am just not comfortable with, you know? <laughs> um, so I'm going to go ahead and steer this boat back into territory that both of us very, very much enjoy, which is define your goddamn term, yes. right? So what is, what is meaning? As I'm reading this, I'm like, well, what is meaning? We're talking about meaning, but we haven't defined what is meaning, you know? So I went to the dictionary, of course, which is your first stop on the research train. And um, it says implied or explicit significance and important or worthwhile quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so meaning is something that is worthwhile or significant. And then, of course, I start thinking about I talk about meaning all the time in terms of story and I haven't defined it. And now I'm writing the How Story Works book. So now I got to go back and put this in there and I got to figure out what it means in terms of story. Um, and humans are meaning seeking creatures. We go to story to give us meaning, to tell us what the larger significance of these things are. Um, and what something means matters greatly to us. Um, and we argue about stories all the time, not about what happens because you can textually note what does and does not literally happen within a story, but about what it means. Um, and so for this purpose in stories, I think I would define meaning as a perceived significance of a thing which exists within an individual, which means that that meaning is something that I ascribe that I make up, that I make up meaning, mm-hmm. you know, and then they talk about you make meaning. Meaning is something that you make from the things around you. And it is so incredibly significant. And it is so incredibly important. And yet. If I just make it up. You know, so I, the whole thing is is rattling my brain right now. Yeah. Um, so coming back to a quote from the book, um, they say, 
Lives may be experienced as meaningful when they are felt to have significance beyond the trivial or momentary, to have purpose or to have a coherence that transcends chaos. Um, finally, whether it supports thriving or sustains coping, meaning is good for you. So you make meaning and it is good for you. And is that all that matters? And should you just stop asking questions at that point? <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. Well, and like you, I've always thought of meaning as the why. Um, one of the first things in this that hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, it hit me in all the feels. They said, yeah. not knowing why is itself a profound type of suffering. And yes. oh, my God. Yeah, I need the why. Like, I feel like I can mm -hmm. handle almost anything as long as I understand why it's happening. Um, but an absence of meaning is, I feel that as deep suffering. So like, I was like, yes, yeah. I, I get it. Um, and they talked about the, the Disney heroine, I want song. And I just got so tickled because I was having a conversation earlier with my sweetheart about the little mermaid and how it's so much fun to parody. Like you can, yeah. like I have, I have a version of that for my cat that she wants to be where the birdies are so she can kill them all. <laughs> um, and me as a child, I was like, I want to read all the books. Um, but I, I, so it's just interesting that so many of the stories that we're raised on have this I want song. Mm -hmm. um, and they, the to quote the book again, they said, we thrive when we are answering the call of something larger than ourselves. When all the commuting and laundry and repeating no television until after you finish your homework has a meaning larger than the grind of daily routine. And so, of course, I'm thinking about this in the, the pendulum from mundane to magic to meaning. And, and how do those things connect and and how do we think about them and i don't have anything solid there but mundane magic meaning is is staying with me and the doctors nagowski i define meaning as a power you carry inside yourself that helps you resist and recover from burnout um but i really loved this they said art orgasms and meaning in life <laughs> you probably recognize them when you encounter them they're different from everything else and no two people's experiences of them are exactly the same <laughs> and i was like yeah that's a great definition um but i was really intrigued with the the two different research approaches to meaning and again i just want to point out that because there are two discussed does not mean there are the only two Right. These are the two current dominant ways of researching meaning mm -hmm. so that that means that there are, of course, others. Um, sure. But as a strategy for promoting happiness, which you're getting from the field of positive psychology, and then as a strategy for coping with illness or trauma. Um, but both of those perspectives had four things in common that I thought was really interesting. And the first is that meaning is not always fun. So this is yeah. not about what's pleasurable, right? It's about what's important to you. Um, that meaning is the feeling that you matter in some larger sense. So like an idea of purpose, right? Um, yeah. Meaning is not constant. So some moments in our lives feel inten intensely meaningful. Doing chores and running errands are meaning neutral. But there are times when we feel a strong sense of its absence. And those are the moments when we are seeking meaning. And they pointed out that if we go too long without experiencing a sense of meaning, that is when 
like life feels like it's stripped of meaning. But I really mm-hmm. liked the idea that this is not constant. Um, and whether it is supporting, thriving, or sustaining coping, meaning is good for you. So those are kind of like the four things that both schools of thought can agree on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they're like, well, where does meaning come from? You make it. And I really like this quote. They said, for most of us, meaning is what sustains us on the long, hard journey, no matter what we find at the end. Meaning is not found. It is made. And they were pointing out that the something larger than yourself is your source of meaning, but you have to engage with it actively. Like the water that I pour in my mason jar doesn't do me any good unless I drink it. And (laughs) they were saying, you know, some people experience this as a calling. Um, And I just had to shout out to Mary Shapen Carpenter because her song, The Calling, is one of my favorite Um, But the research shows that meaning is most likely to come from three sources. And that means not always. Right. Mm -hmm. But the pursuit and achievement of goals that leave a legacy, service to the divine or spiritual calling, loving, emotionally intimate connection with others. But the authors point out in terms of your personal well-being, there is no right or wrong source of meaning. So I Mm -hmm. like that. I like the big open playing field that we have here but I was struggling a little bit to be like okay wait like I thought I was supposed to be managing my stress (laughs) now I'm talking about the meaning of life (laughs) okay let's do this you know (laughs) all right yes exactly strap in all right so we talk about this uh, they keep talking about this something larger like what is the thing that is bigger than yourself that that ascribes meaning to your life. And uh, so I'm going to throw that to you first. Oh, God, you answer that first. Okay. (laughs) What is your something larger, Kelly Jones? Well, they pointed out that some people know exactly what their something larger is and others take years to figure out. And they claim that everyone has an inner voice. You can hear if you stop and listen. Um, You're supposed to ask yourself, what am I doing when I feel most powerfully that I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing? And I, they did suggest if you can't think of it, if you can't identify it, that you ask the people in your life to describe you to you, like from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about this, when I do career coaching, um, I will ask, what do people come to you for? So like we're yeah. looking in the patterns. What do people bring to you? What do people come to you for? Like it can help you sort of think of how others see you, you know, and, and maybe some something that you have to offer in that space. But while I believe meaning ebbs and flows and grows and changes, you know, um, I don't subscribe to the idea that there is one true thing that we're each here to mm-hmm. do. Um, I think we're here to learn things that matter. So I really like the idea of some things larger, plural. And my some things larger, my whys have changed at different points of my life. And I think the only thing that is consistent is I feel a calling to questioning, to wondering, to reading, to making sense of things. And I think most of all, to learning how to think for myself. Um, But I don't know how to how to put that like that's not a service to others. That's not something larger than me you know so like I don't I don't exactly know how to define my something larger here but it was funny because there was one sentence in this that just felt kind of random and it it stuck out to me almost more than anything where they said feeling helpless and isolated are the two things that drain us of meaning fastest 
And I was like, yeah. And after the year that we have all globally just had, isolation yeah. and helplessness yeah. do strip meaning more than anything. Yeah. Um, so that just stood out to me maybe more than it would have in like 2019. Um, oh, sure. You know, yeah. but yeah. So I don't I don't know how to define my something larger. What about you? <laughs> well, OK, before I talk about mine, I'm, I'm interested in in yours um, because you're talking about uh, questioning, wondering, reading, making sense of things, learning how to think. Right. That uh, the way that you I love talking to you about learning. Not just because, you know, the information that you give me about it is so interesting, but like you are so engaged in that discussion. And when you talk about research, when you talk about citations, when you talk about the pursuit of knowledge, like that seems to me to be the thing that lights you up is that discovery of knowledge um, and not just information, but knowledge. It's not facts and data so much as it is, or at least seems to me from watching you from the outside, um, that it is not just the, the acquisition of knowledge and facts, but the application, the discovery of how that relates to everything else and now how we learn about it, how we take knowledge from an exterior space and bring it into us and apply it. Um, that seems to me to be the thing that for you lights you up. So it is literally something's larger. It is everything. There is nothing that is outside of the scope of discovery and application that seems to be where you really get excited. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, that's yeah. just my read of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'm like, I want to think. Like I want to, th <laughs> which feels like such a, like a strange something larger, but, um, yeah. Oh, I, I don't think so. Yeah. 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 And you're, you're a wonderful thinker. Well, I think, you, you know, I, I love the way that you engage with information and knowledge and wisdom. Well, if you like hearing about citations, I have some fun coming up for you in a few minutes, but before we get to there, <laughs> <laughs> I have, yeah, it's, it, yeah, we're going to get there. But before we do, yeah. tell me about your something larger. It's stories. Mm -hmm. Like it always has been since I was a kid. Um, I have always loved stories and storytelling. I didn't quite understand, you know, like I loved television as lots of kids do, but it wasn't just that I enjoyed being entertained. There was something about stories, the experience of stories, reading books, watching TV, movies, everything. Um, and so throughout my life, I have been in, in pursuit of that you know, in one way or another. And originally I was, I wanted to write uh, TV and screenplays, but then I didn't want to go to Los Angeles. And at the time that was pretty much where you had to go. And I didn't like LA. No, no offense to anybody out there living in LA. I know it's wonderful. Everybody tells me how wonderful it is. Um, I like a cold climate. I'm just that kind of girl. Um, so, uh, so I didn't want to go to LA. I ended up going to Alaska and um, started writing novels because I could, mm -hmm. because that was the way that I could access story. And, and, and that was when I realized that the form doesn't matter. That story is something that is independent of form. And um, and slowly, gradually, as I was writing stories, as I was engaging in stories, I was reading, I was critiquing, I was coaching, I was learning that there was something there to stories in and of itself, to the, the meta 
of stories, mm-hmm. you know, that I found fascinating. And that's become my life's work. Um, that has been the thing that I have engaged with. And the thing that when I was in the shit held me up. Yeah. Like when things were really, truly terrible, I would go to my class um, where I was teaching. And it was weird how during that hour and a half, twice a week, I would feel like myself. I would Mm -hmm. reconnect with myself because I was teaching them about stories because I was on firm, solid ground with the work. Um, And so that's something that for me, it's just that is my something larger. That is the thing that I have not gotten bored of. I get bored of everything, (laughs) everything. And I have not gotten bored of that. I'm still fascinated and lit up when I'm engaging with it. Um, so that's my something larger, I think, I love you it. know, um, yeah. that's the, the big thing. And that has, for me, that has been like a singular thing to which I keep returning throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that just because that is the way it is for me, that I think your idea of the plural, your idea of the somethings larger, you know, um, is really, really important. Um, but for me, all of my somethings larger come back to story eventually anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How story works, baby. Just, how story works, baby. All right. So um, I guess next we got to talk about this uh, human giver syndrome yeah. discussion, yeah. which I just found um, both described me to a T and infuriated me all along. Um, so, so I'm going to go ahead and take this from the book, the description of the human giver syndrome. Symptoms include believing you have a moral obligation, that is, you owe it to your partner, your family, the world, even to yourself, to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. Check uh, believing that any failure to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive makes you failure as a person. Check believing that your failure, quote unquote, means you deserve punishment, even going so far as to beat yourself up. Double check believing that these are not symptoms, but normal and true ideas. Like, I believe this so hard that as I was reading this, I was like, yeah, doctors, the sky is blue. What of it? Right. (laughs) Um, I and the thing that is so fascinating about this is that my intellectual and emotional spaces are so different on this. Intellectually, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, yeah, that's some high grade bullshit. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and yet emotionally, do I believe it? Yes, I believe it. You know, um, and they have this thing. Maybe, maybe you can pursue your own personal read selfish something larger if you've thoroughly met the needs of everyone else and don't stop being pretty and calm while you do it. And then, of course, I had this, you know, Cinderella, you can go to the ball after you've done absolutely everything else first, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time you finish meeting everybody else's needs, there's just nothing left for you. Mm-hmm. So the promise of the ball is a bullshit promise because you're never going to get there anyway. Yeah, it's never going to be available to you. And then they have this other quote, if you do that, say by leaving someone else's needs unmet or not being pretty and calm while you do it or claiming power that rightfully, in quotes, belongs not to a human giver, but to a human being, the world smacks you down, which brings us back to season one, a big, strong yes. Who the hell do you think you are? Mm -hmm. Right. So we've been wrestling with this. Then there's this quote, just when I thought I couldn't be irritated enough. Then there's this quote from Joseph Campbell, a man who I have in the past uh, actually respected, who said, women don't need to make the journey. 
when presented with a heroine's journey, Joseph Campbell, for those of you who don't know, is, is the guy who wrote out the hero's journey based on um, discussion of mythology, his study of mythology. He says women don't need to make the journey and the whole mythological journey, the woman is there. All she has to do is realize that she is the place people are trying to get to. Also, she is a place. Yeah. She is not people because she is the place that people are trying to get to. People are men. Oh, my God. So my brain exploded there. Uh, then we get this to suffer from human giver syndrome is to be convinced on some level that everyone should suffer along with us, which also is something I don't like about myself. We have talked a little bit about Amanda Palmer's you and I privately Amanda Palmer's The Art of Asking. Yep. Um, and so I read the book and did not like Amanda Palmer throughout it. And she makes me uncomfortable and she walks through the world with a mediocre white man's sense of entitlement. And it makes me so uncomfortable. And I do not like how it makes me uncomfortable. And I cannot sort out how I feel about Amanda Palmer. Um, so that's something that I struggle with, because I think that when we see human givers, you know, and especially like, you know, in this context, I think we're trained to see women this way more than we are trained to see or people who present feminine more than we are trained to see with people who present male um, in this way. Um we expect them to sit down and shut up and be a human giver like the rest of us, which is also makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that. I have that inclination as well. Although I will say I like to believe that it has been societally installed in my operating system and that I can uninstall it. Um, but when we get down to the end of this discussion, we have the quote, the good news is when you engage with your something larger and thus make meaning in your life, you're actually healing human giver syndrome, both in yourself and in the people around you. And oh, shit, this whole part made me both angry and wildly uncomfortable. <laughs> so I'm going to hand you my bingo card since you had all the mm -hmm. checks. Um, and then I mm -hmm. have a very long section here. But I love it. Before I talk about human giver syndrome, I need to talk about why I love citing sources. Yes. So we get this quote from Joseph Campbell, author of The Hero's Journey, as saying, women don't need to complete the journey. All she has to do is realize she's the place, you know, people yes. are trying to get to. So mm -hmm. great. Thanks for that, Campbell. Now, mm -hmm. of course, this quote made me want to light things on fire. But first, I needed yes. to check the source. And the doctors Nagowski included a footnote with the citation and reference because they are awesome. And I appreciate their presentation of the information in this book so much. So oh, we cite sources so that the people who read our work can trace those sources, take the citation, find the primary source where the quote comes from and read it in its full context. And that way you can yeah. examine the work in depth and consider your own interpretation. So citing uh -huh. sources lays the track that allows other people to find, study and consider the works within your work, in addition to recognizing the sources that have shaped your work. And, mm -hmm. and, and it, it delights me in all the ways. So <laughs> this horrible, terrible quote comes from a book called The Heroine's Journey by Dr. Maureen Murdoch. And it just so happens that I have that book on my bookshelf. Of course you do. And the quote is in there. Um, mm -hmm. So Dr. Murdoch was a student of Joseph Campbell. She is a scholar, a psychotherapist, a professor, and an author. I downloaded her CV. Her credentials are amazing. And the, uh, uh, <laughs> the Campbell quote came from an interview that she conducted with him in response to the heroine's journey model that she developed. And the interview is properly cited in her work. 
Campbell mm-hmm. J. Interview with Author, New York, 15 September 1981. Uh-huh. Um, and the quote is included and discussed in an article published in the Encyclopedia of Psychology and Religion uh, in 2016. Anyone who wants to read it can go to MaureenMurdoch.com slash articles is right there. So okay. too long, don't read. Citing sources delights me to my core. <laughs> and Joseph Campbell can fuck off. Um so now we can talk about human giver syndrome. And okay, the- no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. I need no. to pause for a moment because okay. that was fucking beautiful. That was, first <laughs> of all, the most Dr. Kelly Jones moment of any Dr. Kelly Jones moment. <laughs> I love that you traced all of the citations back to their source, that you read it in perfect context, that we can still say with confidence, fuck off, Joseph Campbell. Um, I love all of that. And I love your, and again, Like when we talk about your something larger being not just the acquisition of information, but the application of knowledge, that is what you're doing here. You are. That was a love letter to the the proper application of knowledge and understanding its purpose. Um, All of that was so fucking delightful. And thank thank you you for doing that. I loved every second of that whole thing. I am so glad. I am so glad. Yeah, and I do. I greatly enjoy this. Um, I love being able to find it for myself, read it in context and decide what I think it means. Like that there is mm-hmm. there is power in that. Um, and I greatly, greatly enjoy it. And and the burnout book is beautifully cited, you know, and it just mm-hmm. it's very well done. I love that. Yeah, That's it's wonderful. it's fantastic. Um, so the Dr. Sagowski describe human giver syndrome as what gets in the way of your something larger. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this and I'm like, well, if human giver syndrome is the virus that's infecting us then the patriarchy and compulsory heterosexuality and anti-fat bias and racism and classism and all the other forms of othering are that virus's DNA. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't read this section. Like it was very challenging for me because it doesn't feel like it fits me. And and I have this in a lot of ways. Um, So I kind of had to do some personal sharing to explain my reaction to this, uh, mm-hmm. because I was raised to be the poster child for human giver syndrome um, in mm-hmm. an extremely volatile, oppressive, male-centered, homophobic religion and household. Um, I was mm-hmm. explicitly taught that women are inferior to men, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. Uh, one fun example, my father taught me that the evils of society have been caused when women got the right to vote. Um, so that is the environment that I grew up in. And Mm -hmm. after a while, I vehemently rejected the whole premise of being less than because I'm a woman. But in, in reading this, like the, the, these descriptions, you know, pretty calm and whatever, but I, I never had potential for pretty. And I don't say that in a self degrading way. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have never felt that pressure because it has simply never been attainable. So it doesn't resonate with me. I don't yeah. carry I would that. Say that. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay. I personally see you and I think you are one of the most beautiful people I've ever known. And I've seen pictures you. of you as a kid and you were lovely. So like, I understand that you didn't feel that way, yeah, but I, but, I, I mean, reject the premise that you're not beautiful. Well, my, I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm just saying mm-hmm. it's not something I strive for. It's not on my right. list because mm-hmm. it's just simply, it's never felt like it has applied to me. Um, my self-worth is much more about my brain than my appearance. And it Mm -hmm. always has been. 
I've also been fat my entire adult life. And anti-fat bias is so pervasive that it completely voids out any sense of being the kind of woman society expects me to be. So I'm like, well, that doesn't apply and this doesn't apply. I raised a son as a single mother. I have a fierce sense of self-reliance. I do struggle with human giver syndrome in family context. I struggle with it like hell as a parent. And I struggle now with the effects of putting myself last you know, for most of my life. And I have certainly, I mean, I certainly have all the burnout from being a woman in a world of patriarchy, but a lot of this section just did not resonate with me because it felt like it was written only for heterosexual women and for society's perspective of straight women. And I am not straight. And so I just needed to acknowledge that the whole women are here for men idea, even when it is called out as toxic, still erases the experiences of queer women. And the Mm -hmm. hidden message there is in the list of what women should strive for, that women should be straight. And and that's Mm -hmm. not even called out at all. So, you know, mostly in this description of human giver syndrome, I see a social system that is real and is damaging. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe it's right. I don't want to live up to those standards. And I don't feel like I'm part of it. I mean, I'm subjected to it. But I am not striving for it. Like, it just doesn't feel authentic to me. I understand that this is the reality, and I think the reality is wrong. I'm an oddball outlier in a lot of ways, but I am a woman who doesn't identify with a lot of the truths presented here. And Mm -hmm. one of the best descriptions of this I've ever found is the comedian Hannah Gatsby, um, whose work Douglas on Netflix is is sheer perfection. Um, But she has a TED talk where she says, I spent my life trying to figure out where I fit in. And now I understand that I don't. And that is so true for me. Um, You know, I was raised to be a conservative, obedient, God fearing girl. And instead, I became a queer, liberal, kind of pagan, kind of humanist academic. And I think a few years ago, this section of the book would have hit me really hard. But my burnout is more a result of trying to force myself into and live in the roles described here. So I'm still Mm -hmm. dealing with the stress of that, but I'm not trying to be these things anymore. So all of that to say, fuck the hero's journey. Um, None of us are places. (laughs) None of us are prizes or property. And none of us are solely destinations for someone else. Wow. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, And that's such a wonderful, you know, perspective on it, you know, that like, and there is something, you know, like as a straight woman, like I read this and I, you know, I fail to see how it erases people who aren't, you know, kind of this, that this space isn't made for, you know, how it erases that experience. And I really appreciate you pointing that out. And that's one of the things about this is that, you know, we talked about how incredibly gendered this book is. Um, And also that I think that there is like kind of a heteronormative feel to it, you know, most of the time that it is told, I think, from the perspective of, 
you know, straight women. And even though in the beginning they say, you know, they say whoever defines themselves as a woman is a woman. But there's also a difference between like the cis experience of being a woman, the trans experience of being a woman, you know, um, the queer experience of being a woman. There are just so many different ways in which um, you can experience both experience and not experience the human giver syndrome the way that they lay it out here. Yeah. Um, so um, so I love that you uh, brought that perspective and I really, really appreciate that. Uh, moving into how we make our own meaning, right? Um, yeah. I love the story of Sophie as a hurrah. Yeah. I love the um, the association with that. I was, I was looking up um, Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura in the original Star Trek, um, just doing a little bit of research. Um, and uh, and she was talking about how she was going to quit because she felt racism on the set. She felt that. And then Martin Luther King said, uh, this is the only show I let my kids watch. Yeah. Because you're there. Yeah. You know? I read that, too. Um, it was lovely. It was so powerful. So powerful. Yeah. yeah. Just so incredibly powerful. And so, like, I, I love that. Um, and that that was one of the you know big steps for representation, which is so, so important because we need to see ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, like we need to see ourselves. We need to feel included in these stories, you know. Um, and then we got to this idea of rewriting your origin story. You know, uh, going back and and taking whatever the story is and then um, running through it. And I like I feel like I, I did that a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, like I did that a little bit in the reflections here, you know. Um, but they end with this. Uh, there is plenty of adversity in the world and it's the topic of the next two chapters. And I'm like, two, you know, I read the book. I read the book, <laughs> but I'm still like two. Two chapters? Really? I, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like I read this book before and the stuff that made me uncomfortable, the stuff that I didn't feel like dealing with, I didn't because I wasn't reading it to talk about it on a podcast. I was just running through it. And the only thing that I remember from it is complete the cycle, complete the cycle. Okay, complete the cycle exercise. And now as we're reading it so much more critically, so much deeper, it's um, it's really interesting how much that I missed and I think deliberately. Oh, yeah, me I too. Think it was because stuff I didn't want. All I with. remembered was just do something. <laughs> something. And which for me was do something. Um, so they have the topic of the next two chapters is adversity. They say, but we want you to confront it knowing you are well armed with these innate weapons and the skill to use them. You've got your stress response and the knowledge of how to complete the cycle. You've got your monitor and planful problem solving and positive reappraisal. You've got your something larger. They will protect you from adversity. They will heal you in the aftermath of adversity. So this is the point in the story where we step away from the shelter of internal experience. This is the time when we stand and look into the face of the enemy. It is about to get pretty dark, but you're ready. Don't tell me what I am. Girl. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> so, yeah. So it looks like we're going to be moving uh, from this like light, fluffy, you make your own meaning and make everything better in your life, you know, to uh, to like slamming into some some real darkness here uh so that should be be interesting yeah yeah that's gonna be super fun um i like mm -hmm. the the human giver syndrome and which to me i'm like life or the world or whatever um will try yeah. to stop you from pursuing meaning your job is not to stop 
Keep engaging with your something larger. Use planful problem solving. Keep completing the cycle. Hashtag persist. But then they do a really good job of pointing out that this is not easy. Um, yeah. And I loved the uh, Yuhara's first name is Noita, the Swahili word for star, as in what we reach for. Um, because yeah. the star is my favorite tarot card. But I Aww. I really appreciated their conversation about turbulence. Because, um, like, mm-hmm. I think it was last week we were talking about the driver being the most important person in the car. Yes. And so I was kind of thinking about, you know, like, my body as a vehicle. And so they're they're using sort of that same metaphor. They're just using it as a plane. Um, and they're talking about how we react to turbulence. And so when you're in the plane and there's turbulence, you grab the seat as if somehow that's going to hold the plane in the air. Um, <laughs> right. You know, but uh, they said in times of crisis, we have to repair the plane before we can return to our journey. That requires us to turn inward toward difficult feelings with kindness and compassion. And they had a really interesting section about post-traumatic stress and the idea of of walking through that you know rewriting that origin story repairing the plane and coming away with something like i am stronger than i thought i was um Mm -hmm. but and i think there's really like you know they immediately move into the next section i feel like we could do four episodes on chapter three um Mm -hmm. because the idea of repairing the plane before you return to your journey like that emotional work that that comes into all of this um, and rewriting a story to find meaning for yourself, I think are incredibly powerful um, mm-hmm. and just really huge ideas. So I'm like, wait, two chapters on adversity. No, I need like six months with meaning. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're moving too fast, yeah. ladies. <laughs> All right. So Kelly, what was your aha moment? uh, I think that was the end uh, rewriting your origin story as a way of repairing the plane. Like I, Mm. I really, really am intrigued by that. What about you? What's your big idea? Uh, Defining meaning, Mm -hmm. trying to define it. There are some things that we say them and we think we know what they mean, but not necessarily. Um, So I love playing around with that. Um, I love, of course, you know, how it speaks to my work, right? You know, um, which, of course, is my something larger. I am excited about kind of playing with that in the book as I write it. Yeah, cool. So what was your strong challenge? What did you resist? Um, all of the instilled beliefs of human given syndrome, <laughs> like all of the symptoms that they say and uh, the fact that I, uh, I reject them intellectually entirely and emotionally like I so believe them Mm -hmm. and um I kind of hate that and that's something I'm gonna have to wrestle with how about you what did you resist um I I feel like I don't believe the tenets of human giver syndrome like I know the system is real but I know the system is broken and you know just the, the conversation completely ignores the experience of of so many people um yeah you know and it it completely like if you're a queer woman, you are not here for men. You're still a woman. And like, it's just not even acknowledged at all. Um, right. So I think that that's, that's a, a I, I am happy to resist it. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm with you on absolutely resisting that. And I also the thing that I, I don't care for, and I think I talked about this in the beginning when I talked about how incredibly gendered the language is here, mm-hmm. um, is that by mapping human giver to women and human being to men, 
we do create this incredibly heteronormative space where if you are a woman who is not giving yourself to a man, that we're not talking about you. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that the experience of being a human giver to someone who feels that they have a right and an expectation to your self and your energy and all of that can happen anywhere along any gender spectrum. Yeah. Um, and regardless of the, the, you know, male or female kind of, of gendering of that. Um, so it's something that I feel like is independent. And I would say that I have felt that way, not just in my relationships with men, you know, I mean, oh, with, yeah. I've had relationships with women that have been like that, yep. with friends that have been like that, Me with too. my mother that was absolutely that, yep. you know. Um, so uh, so I guess like when I look at that and feel that, um, you know, I'm seeing it in so many different ways that go beyond, you know, this like heteronormative idea of this is, you know, how I am, I am thus giving to the men in my life and the relationships I have with anyone who is not male or does not identify as male is suddenly free of this. No. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, so I'm sorry that that is, is an erasing thing. And I fully support you in resisting the fuck out of that. that (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) So what is your yes now? What's your homework this week? You know, I keep, maybe I need to rewrite my origin story, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, but I have to say, I've written that story. I've reframed, I've reframed it and reclaimed my life and all that jazz. Um, and it still hasn't entirely made it go away. So maybe I need to figure out how I rewrite it with a Kintsugi. Um, you know, with, with the gold, like how do I repiece it together in a way that honors the breaks? Mm -hmm instead of trying to heal them or fix them. And maybe that's the way I've been retelling that story. Maybe that's why it's been failing me um, because I'm not willing to, uh, to erase the breaks, yeah. not willing to erase those jagged edges that are part of that experience. So I don't know what any of that means. I'm, 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 you know, running between, you know, literal rewriting of my story and this like metaphor space. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know how to, how to look at that, but I'm going to give it a shot. We'll see if I'm able to provide anything a little more, uh, uh, I don't know, fully thought out next week. Um, how yeah. about you? What's your homework? I, I think it's along the same lines. Um, I'm intrigued by the idea of rewriting my origin story. I'm not sure where to start. Um, my question was, how do you navigate the wild forest of emotions to reach a place of physical healing? But, Mm -hmm. and this is one of those things where I have a tendency to reject an assignment because it sounds too simple and, but I'm rejecting it because it's a lot harder than it actually, you know, sounds, but on page 70 in the paperback, they actually give you a template for rewriting a story. So you're supposed to kind of fill in this sentence and then write a, like a response or like a reflection to it. Even though I couldn't control blank, which is the adversity, I managed to blank, which was your survival tactic. And then I used blank, which were any resources to grow stronger. After that, I could blank. And that's when you list like a skill you gained or a win or an insight or something like that. And I look at that and I'm like, well, that's just too simple for my shit. My shit is complicated. (laughs) And I, but I think it might actually be worthwhile um, to do this 
like several times and try to see what comes yeah. out of it. Um, yeah. Because I'm, I'm like, well, I don't know where to start. And the authors are like, well, here, this, fill in this worksheet. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, tell me how. No, not like that. So exactly. <laughs> I think I'm Tell actually a different how exactly. Mm-hmm. I think I'm actually going to try to use okay. what's in the book to do the homework. So use the template. Yeah. yeah. You know, I resist the template too. Yeah. Yeah. I completely, I saw that. I remember seeing that part and then I just skipped over it in my notes and didn't even address it because I was like, whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the resistance, there is a resistance there to rewriting the origin story mm-hmm. because I feel like I've done that and I feel like rewriting it doesn't, honor something in that experience. I don't know. There's some, there's some stuff that I've, I'm still not ready to kind of like tackle in there. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, Kelly, what's your favorite part? Well-cited sources. God, but I love an excellent references list. (laughs) I love that. What about you? What's your favorite part? Um, I loved Sophie's Uhura story. Yeah. I loved the way she claimed that space and imagining her, you know, six feet tall in that red outfit and just fucking living it. I, I really, really loved Sophie in this in this chapter. It was very yeah, fun. Yeah, I did too. So we want to hear about your favorite part and your thoughts on meaning. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Dinerich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag Big Strong Yes. Also be sure to follow Chipperish Media at Chipperish to stay connected with all of our podcasts. You can learn more about the Doctors Nagowski and Burnout at burnoutbook.net. Patreon supporters are getting exclusive content like Let's Watch Roulette, where Ian Martin from Passion of the Nerd and I react to randomly chosen movie or TV show. And that is for $5 and up supporters and $10 and up supporters get to attend show recordings live. We have some people here and it's kind of awesome. We've also got a new stretch goal. Uh, Once we hit 500 supporters on Patreon, we will unlock the monthly chip chat where I will host a private one hour Zoom call open to every supporter to talk about whatever. So if you haven't pledged your support yet, now is definitely the time. Speaking of supporters, this episode of Big Strong Yes was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Big Strong Yes is coming to you free and ad free right now. So thank you to Abigail, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Rose, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, meaning is a power you carry inside you that helps you resist and recover from burnout. The world will try to stop you from pursuing meaning. Your job is not to stop. We will be back next time with chapter four, The Game is Rigged. Until then, today's closing quote is from Rebecca Solnit. The stars we are given constellations we make. That is to say, stars exist in the cosmos, but constellations are the imaginary lines we draw between them, the readings we give the sky, the stories we tell. 